Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Thursday, the 27th of September, 2012, and our special guest is Tom Vanderark, among other things, the author of Getting Smart. Hi, Tom. Hey, Steve. Thanks so much for being here. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project, thanks to Mighty Bound Blackboard Collaborate for support. I am on my Hack Your Education tour. We'll talk a little bit about that tonight with Tom. Um, currently in Washington State, uh, talking to communities around the country about education. The Learning 2.0 conference recordings are up, learning20.com. That was an incredible event. Again, they're all available for free. Go to learning20.com and uh, I think you'll have some fun. Coming up next week, our second Future of Libraries conference sponsored by San Jose State University. That's October 3rd through 5th, 150 sessions, 10 keynotes, 24 hours a day for two days. It will be really, really fun. Can't wait for that. So if you're interested in the library world, please sign up library2012.com. We had 10,000 uh, attendee logins last year, and we expect uh, even more this year. And then in November is our annual Global Education Conference. This is the Global Conference. This is the Conference on Global Education, not the Global Education Conference, uh, if you can understand the distinction. But this is all about connecting teachers and students globally. It is a blast, five days, 24 hours a day. It's incredible. Lucy Gray, my co-chair, does an amazing job getting keynote speakers, and you will have a lot of fun. Plus, we're still taking applications to present. This is a highly inclusive conference. It's all about participating, so we hope that if there's something you're doing in that area, that you'll come and share it. Coming up on the Future of Education, next week is a little bit of a break because of Library 2.012. Then on the 9th of October, Blake Bowles comes on to talk about his book, Better Than College. Denise Pope from Stanford comes back to talk about her Challenge Success program. Kirsten Olson, first time on the show, will talk about her book, Wounded by School. Very interested in that. Susie Boss comes back to talk about her new book, Bringing Innovation. Uh, Jamie McMillan on Legendary Learning, Famous Homeschoolers. Can't wait for that. Yo, Wishnik, Tony Jackson um, from Asia Society coming on in November. Then the Global Education Conference. Anyway, and lots more fun that hasn't been posted yet, but we'll keep you informed at futureofeducation.com. If you've missed any of the sessions, there are now over 300 of them. Last, this has been a busy week. Last night was the uh, True History of the MOOC panel. <laughs> Dave Cormier, Stephen Downs, Alec Koros, uh, Rita Kopp, Inga Duard. I mean, this was really, really fun. Carol Yeager, uh, really worth listening to, especially kind of Stephen Downs' diagram of where he thinks this is going. And the difference between the connectivist MOOC and the sort of ex-MOOC now popular. Uh, Ron Richhart from Harvard talked to us about uh, making thinking visible. The student author, Nikhil Goyal, talked about one size does not fit all. Um, fit all. Anyway, lots up there, really worth um, listening to if you have the time, both in full Blackboard Collaborate form and in MP3. So this is where we get to find out from our studio audience where they're listening from. Look for the star to the left of the map, click on it twice, and then click on the map. Feel free to shout out in the chat. I always know Bill is in the audience when I see that the Philippines link. Australia. 
looks like a couple in Australia, two or three. Thanks so much for joining us, wherever you're participating from, or if you're listening to the recording. We're sure glad that you have taken the time. There is a Mighty Bell space for this interview. I do consulting work for Gina Bianchini, and Gina was co-founder of Ming. I consulted for Ming for 18 months, and I'm now consulting on Mighty Bell, so that's full disclosure. But there's a space to aggregate information about tonight's show. Feel free to use it for conversation, for linking to blog posts and the like. So Tom, uh, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I know you're in demand. Great to be here. You've, you've had an amazing list of uh, interview guests, so it's uh, really pleased to be with you, Steve. Well, I'm glad you feel that way. So I wanted to start with a question that's really not answered in the book, although you tell some delicious stories I can't wait to talk about. But uh, I've been asking parents, students, and teachers to identify their, uh, their own most significant learning memories experiences that they had as a child or a young adult that were sort of seminal or critical to them. What were yours? You know, it's interesting. Um, I'll pick an unusual one out, and it happened in the middle of the night with a drunk boss uh, when I was uh, 27. I had gone all the way through graduate school and don't really think I learned to write until I had a boss that really cared about what went to uh, the board of our, our public company. And uh, he made me rewrite everything three times and then would rewrite it himself. Uh, it was really the first time that I'd seen an adult care so much about a work product uh, and really, really agonize over um, making a written product as clear and concise uh, for an audience as it could possibly be. And while that learning experience was not uh, very pleasant, it did it gave me a very high bar for uh, for for work product and an appreciation for um, the the written word and the writing process. And so it, it was, Late in life, but uh, an important lesson. Did you have Do you have any memories, sort of K twelve, of teachers who influenced you significantly? There's a seventh grade writing teacher that uh, that I think was was really encouraging, and I, I know I read and wrote a lot uh, for her, and so that that was was instrumental as well. Have you, as an adult? Uh, kind of discovered ways in which you feel that you learn best? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I actually learn by writing. Um, I, I find that the, I try to write a blog every day, which is a, a lot. Um, and when the, there's a variety of ways that makes me uh, learn. It, when people ask me, really good questions, I write them down and I'll often say, I'm not sure what I think about that, but I will write it and I'll send you a link. And that kicks off what is usually several days, sometimes a several week um, investigation of asking the smartest people I know about a, a, a topic. And so writing is, is not only the way I come to understand what I think about a subject, it's 
a way that I um, push my own learning and uh, and ask smart people for their opinion. Interesting, because for me, um, while I do learn while writing, I really learn in this format, the, the talking. There's an old Irish proverb that how will I know what I think until I hear myself say it? And I go through almost the exact same process, right. but it's typically in a conversation, and I'll say something and quickly write it down because I realize my brain's made a connection that it hadn't made before. Um, we do this exercise. Right. It's really fun to do this with local communities because we kind of try and move forward from personal learning experiences and learning styles to kind of defining um, an environment conducive to uh, you know, personal learning plan. And there was so much language in your book that I really loved um, around these kinds of things. You clearly feel that this is a significant time in human history. It, it is a pivotal time. Uh, it, it'll prove to be more important than the printing press was uh, 500 years ago, and, and it will happen uh, much, much quicker. Uh, it's the, the, the shift to digital learning is really the first chance that we've had to significantly and relatively quickly boost student achievement here in this country and the first chance in human history to extend access to quality, particularly quality secondary to every young person on the planet. So I, I do think it'll be fun to kind of drill down there and sort of the distinction between access and learning. Um, I want to tell you that I, I knew some of your background, right. but there are three stories that you tell early on. It may even be in the forward. Um, the Colorado Children's Campaign, taking a job as superintendent just as a strike started, and then sitting in the audience at your daughter's graduation. Those felt to me like kind of significant moments in your own kind of commitment to what you're doing. Yeah, no question. Um, the, the first story, I was a young CFO of a public company uh, at the time, about a $3 billion company, and my boss uh, told me to to pick a Denver children's charity and to take them to the next level. And I begrudgingly joined uh, the board of the Colorado Children's Campaign and, and uh, a remarkable executive named Barbara O'Brien in about 60 days uh, had made me a complete evangelist for kids. And it was a combination of field trips to, to schools in the barrios of West Denver and, and a lot of data uh, about the real gaps in opportunity in, in America today. Um, so I knew at that point I'd spend the rest of my my life working on on uh, educational equity. Uh, I did have the chance uh, after we sold that company to become a public school superintendent, and uh, did have a teacher strike my first day on the job. That was um, the whole thing was a very steep learning curve, sort of a entering into an, an alternative universe. Um, it was a, a really wonderful uh, leadership and, and certainly a, a great learning opportunity for me. And, and then unfortunately, I think I learned a lot after I left the job. I, I went, uh, my daughter graduated shortly after I, I left the superintendency to help Bill and Melinda start the Gates Foundation. And I went to her graduation and I was in the audience and I thought there's not enough kids here and I, I actually counted the kids in blue robes and I only found 400 and I knew that we had sent 600 to that high school and I, I spent the next 90 minutes wondering about the 200 young people in my own community that had not 
made it to school. And I, I did some mental math, and there, there were probably almost 10,000 kids on my watch just in my town at, at our five high schools that uh, that did not walk. And, and that, that was really a, a, a moving um, experience for me, and it's, it's a, a big part of why we spent uh, the first eight years at the Gates Foundation really focused on um, the, the graduation crisis in America. Those stories were, they were moving to me, and I could really um, could see what an impact it would have had on you. I especially thought the teacher strike one was illuminating because I'm sure it was much more complex than the few lines you give it in the book. But you do indicate that it became a real opportunity for you to become part of a dialogue with the teachers. Is that right? It, it, in the in the community, Steve. Uh, you know, I, on the during the day, I walked a picket line, just meeting teachers, trying to find out what was going on. And then at night, I ran an open gym, open mic session, and just kind of played Phil Donahue for the community. And we. Every night for three hours, we would just talk about kids and community, and it, it was a bit of a public puke where people would just come and 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 sort of pour their hearts out um, about their their hopes and dreams, both teachers and parents. And it was occasionally really angry, but it it um, every night became a real constructive dialogue about uh, what we could do better together and you know by the end of the week I, I knew uh, most people in town. So if we take that kind of to the meta level, it also led me to think a little bit about sort of how we view education in this country and you had this experience where that community dialogue was really valuable and one of the places that I've often pushed back with guests, um, especially Charles Fidel who's come on with some regularity is this idea that somebody at the top is going to determine what's the best education or what's the best system. And unlike our heavily democratic heritage, there's this assumption that we can just kind of push that down. How do you balance that tension between kind of finding things of value through you know, sort of high-level focus groups and the need for participation? Well, the, if if any version of that was ever possible, the days are gone. I, you know, since the inflection point of the mobile web in 2010, what's what's changed in the last 24 months is this subversive, disruptive uh, process where parents, teachers, and kids are are finding, uh, creating, sharing, learning resources. It the the bottoms up anywhere, anytime learning uh, opportunities that exist have changed how change happens, uh, particularly in education. So um, there, there are a few communities where an enterprise approach to change will happen that uh, is not very often top down. If it is an enterprise approach where everybody is using uh, you know, a, a similar pedagogy and a similar school model and similar tool set, Mooresville, North Carolina is a good example of that. I call it an enterprise approach. But Mark Edwards there is just, I think, a masterful leader who really does a nice job of uh, uh, inclusive leadership and, and continual dialogue and where people really feel heard and valued. So that may be an example of, of an enterprise uh, 
approach where a small community that feels really connected where the culture really values uh, learners and teachers. Um, but I, I think much much more often um, a, a big city needs a portfolio approach. Um, Jim Shelton and I first wrote about this in in uh, 2004. Our, the Gates strategy was built on this portfolio approach and the um, Center for Reinventing Public Education continues to advance that sort of portfolio approach. I think the best city leaders can do now is really to uh, to try to empower uh, communities to create uh, great options. There's a nice parallel there between learning as a process and uh, the community development of education as a process. But it feels like that really gets lost in the national dialogue on education, um, especially as sort of we watched what happened in Chicago and um, kind of the single note we hear from either party about accountability. Do, do we have a way to shift the national dialogue toward an understanding of that value of process? Uh, that's a tough question, Steve. I guess I'm pretty discouraged about the national dialogue. I, I wrote about that on uh, my Edweek blog today. Um, I'm I'm pretty angry at the sort of thin. Uh, rhetoric from both parties when it comes to to education. Um, I, I am, however, really optimistic about the options that are being created. I'm, I'm really optimistic about what's happening in a lot of communities around the state, uh, around the country. Um, I, I do think we're in a time where city and state leaders can make uh, an extraordinary amount of difference. Um, so I, I I do think it's um, the 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 bully pulpit and the opportunity to frame uh, the opportunity set in a city. Uh, I, I was talking to the New York City uh, iZone uh, Innovate New York City uh, team today, and you know I think that's an example of folks that really for for their teachers and kids um, have an opportunity to really help create new tools and, and new schools uh, in, in a very exciting way. So I'm encouraged by a lot of, of what I see. I am not encouraged about the, the national dialogue. It, it, for example, it's just a complete travesty that Congress hasn't been able to even address ESEA in 10 years. It's just it's outrageous that that, you know, that law that was well-intentioned in 2001 uh, hasn't been Fixed uh, five times since then. So you're so it's a, a you're sounding more negative than I think the book is. Um, let's sort of shift gears then. Well, I'm yeah. I mean, I'm optimistic. I'm op optimistic about uh, what's in front of us. I, I think in in large measure we're going to make big progress, sort of in spite of. Uh, of Fairly dysfunctional national politics. As I read the book, I thought you, uh, you're, start, you're definitely wearing rose-colored glasses when it comes to technology, and that, you know I'm often accused of the same thing. Um, there's a lot of Kool-Aid that I want to drink, but I want to ask some sort of deeper questions as we go through this, and kind of give you a chance to justify that optimism. Um, one is, as a father of four children, uh, and especially kind of with the age span of my kids and watching technology change. 
there are times, there are two things that come out of my experiences as a parent. One is that sometimes the technology is a distraction from the deeper thinking or habits of mind. Sure. Um, and the other is that there's actually more work sometimes because of the technology. Now it's better work and it's better outcome, but it feels like the promise of having things be easier or faster or simpler sometimes doesn't square with my own experience. So two, two big questions. I guess to the disruption, uh, absolutely. I, it's never been more important for parents to, to manage uh, kids' time online. Um, the, the, the new digital divide is, is uh, less and less of, about the access to devices and more and more about how time online is, is being used. Um, so yes, it, it is going to be even more important for teachers and parents to manage time online and to try to uh, both curb how much there is and what happens uh, while kids are online. In terms of the more work, um, I just reviewed Michael Fullan's new book, uh, Stratosphere, and he's even <laughs> rosier than I am. Uh, it's a very high level, very optimistic book, but he does he does say that as leaders in the sector, we need to build what he calls skinny solutions, stuff that's hard to build but really easy to implement, and that we, we need to, to make uh, education tools that are you know, as easy as iPads to, to use, turn on, turn off. Uh, you, know, you don't need to read a manual. You don't need to go to eight hours of training. Um, so we, we, we are in a super frustrating state between sort of first-gen tools and second-gen tools, and you can choose between a learning management system with flattened sequential content that is easy to monitor, uh, or you can choose between a bunch of whiz-bang Web 2 stuff that's uh, that's fun and engaging, but none of it stitches together. Um, so it it is early, it is messy, uh, and right now to do. Uh, an innovative school, it is more work, uh, but I, I'm I'm so optimistic about how fast that's changing. I'm very confident that we're going to see um, really powerful learning platforms in the next 24 months that that do make it easier to uh, provide the kind of personalized learning experience that we've we've wanted to for a long that time. That response is interesting to me, in part because. When I was saying that, I was thinking less of overseeing my children's use of the internet or, or the tools, and more of the time it takes to build a character of self-direction, which feels like it's different than kind of controlling. It feels like the, the work that I was thinking of was more kind of the, the highly human, detailed work of helping somebody become self-motivated because the world will offer so much possibility that they need to be driving themselves. Does that make sense? Sure. Uh, I, I think it's, um, I think it's the motivation. There's so much content that's so engaging and so motivating. I think it's, um, it, it is a challenge, however, to, um, 
to stay goal focused and directed, uh, really to to modulate one's uh, use of time in a in a thoughtful way. I mean, for us as adults, we're um, just learning this skill in a in a Web two world, uh, and I think we're often sort of learning and teaching simultaneously. Yeah, there's a place in the book where you say. As more content is offered automatically on the web, teachers can focus on the important stuff like critical thinking. And, and I, I wondered right. if that wasn't a little bit at odds with this idea that we would need fewer teachers. Because for me, that teaching of critical thinking, uh, at least as a parent, feels like it's actually more time consuming. Well, I, I do envision a different kind of school day and sort of a flip day where we can send home a customized playlist with every kid and spend more time uh, at school in in um, Socratic seminars, in workshops, in project-based learning, in community-connected, uh, more authentic work. Um, and you're right, that may not be it, I think we have to be smart about how we manage that time. Um, I, but I do think the technology, the personalizing technology, can help us extend the reach of our best teachers. That really is, I think, the most important factor. Not, not fewer teachers, but extending the reach of, of the best uh, teachers we have. And, and I think we. The exciting thing from a teaching standpoint is I think we can create working conditions that are that are just much better and working environments that are uh, more interesting and a, a, a support system that's much better for new teachers where they join a team. A blended learning is really a team sport, um, not the sort of individual practice. I think about the assignments that I gave to new teachers, uh, often the most difficult schools and the most difficult classrooms and the most difficult schools, and it's really crazy uh, thing to do. And I think we can build an on-ramp for new teachers that lets them learn the craft and, uh, and the tools and, and build a, a lattice uh, of opportunity for learning professionals that creates really, really interesting options. And, and for teachers that want to stay in the classroom, the opportunity to earn a lot more than they do today. I did love the description of the increased options for teachers. I thought that was really brilliant. Um, but I'm, uh, Steve, I, I, I would just add that the one of the most exciting things that's happening in the sector is just the, the level of talent that's coming into the sector is really unprecedented. As a, a venture investor, I, I get to see uh, proposal, lots of proposals and lots of new teams uh, every week. and. Uh, all the smart kids from all the best schools in the country want to work in education, and that's uh, I think really, really heartening. Um, so uh, it's an exciting time to be an educator, and it what's happening is um, that teachers now have many different ways to make a difference, and many different ways to uh, to to work with children, some that are traditional and some that are that are very non-traditional. Does it help to to define a difference between a great teacher as one who's good at delivering content and a great teacher who's able to draw out the individual motivation and 
um, engagement of a student? Sure. And if so, does that sort of further define where a great teacher is teaching online and where a great teacher is in the classroom? Sure. Uh, I think we're going to have to get better at understanding people's gifts and interests as, as educators and helping them find or create roles that really uh, best best suit their um, their interest and skills. Yeah, I mean, and for some that'll be creating creating content, and for some it will be coaching students. Yeah, again, uh, I'm going to pay you some compliments in a minute. So. You know, this is sort of the place where I felt a little pushback for me was that the idea that great teachers would then be sort of magnified to the online environment, and I wondered, well, you know, oftentimes that great teacher wasn't necessarily because of the content they were delivering or the engaging style. You'll often hear teachers tell stories of, like Ron Richard from Harvard this week said, you know, I thought I was a great teacher because I told jokes and I engaged the students. They were like being in class. But I didn't realize until I was really impacting individual students and helping them think about thinking that that's what was really critical. Right. Well, don't, you're, you're putting, I think, these extended impact ideas in, a, in, a, in too small a box. Uh, look at the work that Public Impact is doing, opportunityculture.org, for 10 examples of of ways that great teachers can uh, can extend extend their reach, and you know I think technology can help in a in a variety of ways to create uh, school cultures and school environments that um, where where all teachers can uh, do the kind of work they want, and where uh, where the best teachers have an opportunity to to influence the achievement and persistence of a larger number. Absolutely, of and I guess the. You know, my question was, does this sort of dotted line of blended learning and teachers online meaning a cost savings? And, and, and I'll just sort of leave that as an open question because I wasn't convinced that, uh, that that would actually be the case. Uh, it felt like you would need more personal attention, again, with my own experience with my kids. We can move on. Well, the, the, uh, where, where there is the, the potential to use a really comprehensive learner profile to drive a customized playlist uh, for for every kid, and and like Rocket Ship uh, Elementary in San Jose for kids to spend, you know, even elementary kids to spend uh, 20 or 25 percent of their time in async learning, um, buys some time for teachers to spend more time in in uh, small groups, one on one, uh, or in in larger group sessions. So it. The technology can buy us some time to do the kinds of things we've always wanted to do. I mean, my, one of my favorite examples is at School of One. You know, every kid gets a playlist every day in in math, and and quite often that includes a small group instruction. So a teacher will have a group of six or eight students, and the magic of of that setting is that every student is ready for that lesson in that mode on that day, and. That's the magic we ought to be able to deliver to, to deliver to teachers that a smart algorithm and a dynamic scheduling um, system that that creates an environment where, where she can be successful. Yeah, we've certainly seen that in things like Amazon, right? I mean, I feel like my book buying experience is you know ten to twenty times magnified. 
I was recently in Powell's bookstore in Portland and realized that I don't like being in a physical bookstore because I can't see the reviews of other people. <laughs> I literally looked at the shelf of books and said, I have no way of gauging the value of these different books. So clearly there are plenty of ways in which I think we're going to see, again, I'm, the rose-colored glasses, I'm wearing them as well. Hey, I love your appendix suggestions, uh, especially the uh, idea of building an online learning plan and kind of the parents modeling the learning as well um, and, and the motivational profile. Uh, so we, I don't know that I, there's a good sense for me in the book of kind of the primacy of the role of parents, but how do you address the poverty parent issue? So one thing that uh, needs to happen in the next 36 months is that we just uh, begin to take that, um, begin to close the at least the digital divide by making sure that every kid and, and soon every family um, is, is connected and that every kid has a, a mobile learning device. Um, that I, I think when every, every student has access to quality content and quality teachers 24-7, uh, that, that, uh, that that makes a difference. Um, and with the advent of online assessment in 2014-15, districts and states uh, really have to start figuring this out now. And by 2014-15, we, we need to be at at least, a, I think, a one to two kind of environment. And very shortly thereafter, uh, we need to be at a, at a two to one, you know, where every kid is, is on multiple screens uh, during the day. And, and uh, getting to a two or three to one, not a three or two to one, uh, meaning, you know, a two or three screen day is going to require uh, some budget reallocations from districts. It'll require a contribution from states, maybe the feds, uh, and it, it'll require that we make good use of uh, a bring your own device strategies, encouraging kids to, as they say in Riverside, bring what you have. We'll make sure what you you get what you need, and we'll work with you on uh, on uh, kind of kids. Yeah, I talked before the show about the of somewhat um, incredible uh, value we now get, not only in the cost of the device, but what it gives us access to in ways that, you know, as somebody who's a little bit older, I feel just sort of stunned by the, my ability every day to find material and to, uh, to then I have to drive down to the bookstore or the library to, to follow up on the topic. Um, but there are many who kind of push back on that, feeling like the idea of seeing the technology as a panacea um, isn't fair to the process. That, that those of us who are older have a mental process for understanding that. So along with the access to technology, obviously there needs to be a fair amount of training. And are teachers prepared in their own lives to do that? No, but that's not an excuse <laughs> to wait. Um, you know, the, the exciting thing, as I said before, about what's happening now that we've never experienced is the, just the parents, teachers, and kids are blending their own learning. They're flipping their own lives. And uh, so, you know, as leaders, we need to find ways to empower that um, while we're supporting the, the professional learning of teachers. And I, I said to a friend earlier today, um, we, we need to 
both empower the leaders, um, create learning experiences for teachers, and we need to be in the business of creating new schools. Uh, it is really uh, new school environments that um, that have these new um, staffing strategies, new schedules that, that are really competency-based, that expect kids to show what they know. Um, in that sort of new setting, uh, I think adult learning experiences are going to be more meaningful. That's why I, I recently have written a lot about flex environments and why I think at the secondary level why every district should be creating what, what InnoSight Institute calls a, a, a flex school where it has a digital backbone, where it's an a, um, individual progress model. Uh, I think every teacher in the country should have an opportunity to spend some time in that sort of environment just to, to get a, a sense for how a one-to-one a -one, um, competency-based model how that works and what the teaching role feels like. Uh, and, and so great just-in-time tools for teachers, uh, opportunities to visit schools that work uh, in, in different ways, and then you know empowered learners for uh, kids and parents and teachers that are ready to move. A question came up in the chat about the Common Core. One of our recent guests, I, I won't name names, uh, described a large technology company he worked for and said that uh, it was now peopled by individuals who knew how to maneuver the system of the company rather than actually knowing things of real value. Is there a danger that the common core becomes kind of a rat's maze, that, that we assume creativity will build around it, but that it's, um, it's likely to result in kind of uh, gaming and following? Well, I, as you see from my Common Core blog on uh, Edweek today, uh, I'm, I'm bullish on the Common Core. It's not, it doesn't solve uh, all of our problems, but they're better standards, they're higher standards. Students will read more, they'll write more, uh, they'll do more problem solving. And as I said in my blog today, it's sort of like the iPhone for education. It's a platform for innovation uh, that, uh, that is already producing a, an avalanche of, of great new content, a lot of it open and free, um, new, de new devices, new platforms. Uh, so it, it is, as, as somebody said in chat earlier, a huge challenge, right? These are different and higher expectations. I fully appreciate that. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm helping companies like Mastery Connect and, uh, and LearnZillion um, create uh, quizzes and tutorial content around the Common Core. And the ability to share that state to state, district to district, school to school, is just such a, it's such a gift. It, uh, this, I think, is how things ought to be rather than every state you know, creating their their own standards. So I'm I'm bullish. Uh, I, I I completely understand that 2014-15, when the online assessments start, when the rubber hits the road, it's right around the corner. It's uh, uh, most places aren't going to be ready, and we're going to be disappointed with the uh, initial results. But uh, I, I think it's a really big step forward.
Uh, Nikhil Goyal was on the show. He's this, I think he was 17, I think, when he wrote the book, but he, he may or may not be 18 now. I remember he wrote this book called One Size Does Not Fit All. And uh, in talking to him, it occurred to me that uh, as much as we talk about wanting independent thinking and innovation from our students, um, are we ready for students who say, I don't like this system? Right? Or now that I'm empowered, I'm going to choose to do something different. How do you reconcile that in your own mind? So I'm, as you've heard before, I'm a I'm a big fan of options, uh, and I, I think there ought to be a lot of options uh, for students and families. Um, I I do from an equity standpoint. I strongly support. Uh, the the idea of every student being college eligible that means they should have the writing and math skills to pass a community college placement exam and they ought to have a transcript that allows them to begin uh, earning credit uh, in in college and so I, I do think there's um, an equity rationale for for that kind of goal and we do need to make sure that uh, as a few people are concerned that the ability to personalize means lower expectations for some kids and uh, I think we need to guard against that uh, but I, I, I do think it's important to have a few common expectations uh, around reading and writing and probably uh, problem solving uh, but I, I'm I'm very interested in a lot of, uh, you know, a portfolio of options around those core objectives. I'm wondering if you know Mark Tucker. Sure. So uh, I interviewed Mark, and the impression I got was well, there were two pieces that really stuck out for me. One was that in Canada, the teacher pool was relatively equivalent to our teacher pool, but they determined to give more trust and autonomy. Um, to the individual teachers, does that um, am I am I remembering that correctly? And is that is there an, a reasonable association with their now um, better success in Canada? I can't say, um, yeah. it, but it is quite different uh, province to province. So the other piece of that book that was so interesting to me was his I his statement, and I'm paraphrasing, but that. Um, we're behind, and none of the things that we're doing really match with the achievement, uh, with the things that the other countries who are high achieving right now, if you measure by the PISA test, have done. So that would include things like chartered schools and, um, you know, private uh, investment in private companies for education. How do you feel about that particular argument? That that we're not doing the things that high high achieving countries are right. Well, and, and that our solutions for getting to high achievement, like many described in the book, yeah, are not actually ones being done by the countries that we're looking at now as, no, as having true. higher achievement. Uh, true, but you know, every, every country is different. It's hard. Uh, Finland is great. I, I love. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in in Sweden and Denmark with Mark Tucker visiting schools there. I, I think. Um, we should learn everything we can from 
uh, schools in in every country that are um, that are doing a, a great job, and then think really hard about the American context. Um, so this is a, it's a very different place. I, uh, you know, I've traveled a lot in Asia and Southeast Asia, and one I find from bottom to the top of the the economic pyramid, I find a relatively uniform academic press. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in the slums of India, and I find even in those settings, most kids have a number of adults at home who who consider uh, academic success of the children their primary goal. Uh, I don't find that sort of um, common academic press in the United States. Uh, so it, it, this is just a very different challenge. Um, and, and so I, I think we just need, given our particular context, uh, to try to, try to create the, the best possible solutions that we can, um, you know, community to community and state to state. So we're going to switch to Q&A. I have some questions if we get a lull. From the looks of this chat, I don't think we're going to get a lull. Yeah, there's a steady stream of great and very difficult questions. Uh, no, no problem there. So it's hard for me to follow the chat as I'm doing the interview. So if you put a question in the chat for Tom that didn't get asked by me, and that's likely all of them, uh, feel free to post it again or raise your hand, and I'll give you the microphone. That's the third icon over. It's the hand icon. And you can raise your hand and, and uh, take it. Tom, uh, you know, there's so much in the book that we're not going to have time to talk about. Um, I was at Stanford for this lead symposium meeting a couple of weeks ago and had an epiphany moment. And it was, a, it was a nonprofit that's going to aggregate broadband purchasing for schools. And the, the sort of big aha moment for me was um, that uh, in a sort of a mature industry, which is broadband, the, uh, clearly the schools were being way overcharged for their broadband uh, because it was um, kind of uh, private, uh, uh, you know, the offering of commercial services through private um, for-profit companies. Um, how do we reconcile those kind of experiences with the idea of investing, you know, these sort of new Silicon Valley venture capital, this is your world, companies, you know, who are likely to be trying to maximize profit and, and maybe less likely to actually produce the kind of outcome that this nonprofit wanted? Uh, you may be talking about Evan and the Education Superhighway? Yes. Uh, so I think Evan is, uh, I love that guy and really appreciate his work. Um, Doug Levin at CETA, the State Ed Tech Directors Association, those two are really the, the ones paying most attention to the broadband challenge. We're going to have a lot of spinning, spinning wheels uh, in school this fall and next fall as more and more iPads uh, show up because we're not paying enough attention to this. Um, so school districts and particularly states uh, are going to need to create uh, partnerships to um, improve broadband access uh, to, to every home and particularly to, uh, to low-income urban households and to rural households. Those are the big challenges. School districts are going to need help uh, from their, both from, from their SEA, the, the, the state uh, ed departments. Um, and and th this should 
come up any time a, a state uh, or the FCC is, is selling spectrum. The question of access really as a public good is uh, has to, to be central uh, as we make this shift to digital learning. Lawrence has a question. You put it in the chat, but Lawrence, I'm going to give you the mic if you'd like to ask it in person. So to turn your microphone on, you click on the talk button at the top left. And if you don't turn your mic on in a second, I'll just read it from the chat. Looks like uh, his question is, what would be your radical solution to the U.S. K-12 education problem? <laughs> the radical solution, Lawrence, is every kid has caring, supportive parents <laughs> that make education their number one priority. Uh, I haven't figured out how to do that. Uh, but. Um, Wow, so that's a great question. Um, we just wrote a paper on on access uh, about three strategies states can use to, um, it's on digitallearningnow.com uh, about how states and districts can create access for every student. Um, so, uh, you know, I would love to see governors and state chiefs uh, make a, I'd like to see some of them lead. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, we haven't seen the leadership that we need at the state level um, to say, we're going to implement Common Core. I'm behind teachers in my state 110%. And, and here's you know, a five-year plan to make the shift to digital, to make sure every kid and every family has access, and to make sure that every teacher has the sort of learning uh, opportunities that they need and want over the next five years. So, I guess my my, my answer, Lawrence, would be uh, state and district leaders uh, that show some courage and some vision. Tom, it would be fun to have you to find a time when you and I could do one of these community covered the hack education hack your education community conversations together because they yeah. really are directly tied to this idea of how to help bring parents into the conversation without the tension of the kind of current national dialogue. Um, if you have a question for Tom, you can raise your hand. It's the third icon open the participant window. You can put it in the chat. Uh, while we're waiting, Tom, I think my question on the um, broadband was more, it's, this is too broad a brush, but I'll say it anyway. You can, you can refine it. If we look at prisons and privatization and we look at um, uh, warfare and privatization, we can see some pretty interesting results that come from the incentive structures of making money off of something that we would sure. claim as a public good. How do you protect for how do you protect education from that kind of outcome? Yeah, so uh, um, I've written a couple white papers on the subject, and I, I I really believe the big advances, uh, particularly in this country, will come from public-private partnerships. I think it's really important that we create structures that, where each uh, sector uses, uh, where we put the right, the right form of capital to, to use. And, and very quickly, uh, governments need to frame problems and set goals. So that's state and local leaders. They need to invite people to spend money on their problem. Uh, so they need to invite philanthropy and private enterprise to the table. Foundations have two. Uh, unique goal, uh, unique capabilities that they need to use. That is um, the, the ability to take the long view, much more so than elected officials or private capital, 
and to promote equity. And then third, private enterprise is very good at producing and scaling innovation. And we should create sort of focus and, and um, incentives for them to do that. And we need to find ways for those three sectors uh, to work together on the, all the big problems in society, on health, on transportation, on, on climate change, but particularly on education. Okay, again, this is a Q&A time. Feel free to put a question in the chat. I don't think I've missed any, but you're welcome to do so. Or raise your hand, and I'll call on you. Um, Tom, in the book, there are several quotes that talk about the tie between uh, uh, a robust economy and schooling or training. And um, how do we balance kind of education as a benefit to the individual versus the outcome that's valuable to the economy? Is there a tension there, or are the two reconcilable? Wow, that's a really interesting question. And I, I guess I see them as entirely compatible. Um, so, I, I, I'm, so it's kind I, of a Venn diagram, right? I mean, you have yeah. things that are valuable for work, and then you have things that are valuable for sort of personal independence and thinking. But they don't completely overlap. I mean, there are parts that do, but no. it seems like there's a there's a place where you may. Well, more, but I, yeah, but I, I would say that more more of both is great. And you know, our our goal in education is not just employability, but productive citizens, right? And so, from an education standpoint, the the more the merrier. This is not just about an educated workforce. It's even more than that about a uh, a, a raising. Uh, citizens, engaged, uh, enlightened citizens. I think the more, you know, the, the, the challenge that I spend a lot of time thinking about these days is now that we, we are creating all these anywhere, anytime learning opportunities, just-in-time, passion-driven uh, opportunities to learn anything, uh, and we have Common Core and we have job requirements definitions, how do, how do, we, how do we, in interesting ways combine uh, the sort of learner-driven, passion-driven learning with uh, sort of cohort-based uh, um, programs of study. I think that's the new design challenge uh, of, of the day. That certainly came up in our session on the MOOCs, that this, uh, you have a phrase for it, and I've got to go through my notes, but it was uh, social learning groups. Yeah, that's the, the exciting thing is that I think the answer is sort of this uh, social learning platforms where teachers can quickly and dynamically create groups or where learners can uh, create and join uh, groups. And I think we can, the, part of the answer is going to be allowing learners to determine how and when to join an interest group, a, uh, a, a study group, uh, a project team. Uh, so I think uh, giving parents, teachers, and kids the ability to, to vary that from a limited amount to a lot is, is going to be really helpful. I was actually, you and I have never talked before, but I was actually surprised that you didn't mention things like Classroom 2.0 where, you know, for the last five years we've had this sort of fascinating opportunity for teachers through a variety of social networks to gather together and do peer professional development. Um, was it just not on your radar or, or uh, is this something that's kind of um, 
not as impressive as I think it is. I uh, just don't know much about it. Yeah, I think it would be fun for you to learn about it. Um, yep. It really started with the Ning networks, I think, and it was this ability to convert now tens of thousands of communities of practice for educators where they get together. Um, and it was the basis of the Department of Education's uh, um, uh, month of, in August, the Connected Educator Month. And I think it's kind of brilliant, this this idea that teachers are informing each other's practice and sharing knowledge. Well, I, typically this you know, I was uh, helped start uh, Edmodo three years ago, so I guess I've spent a lot more time on that front. And we, you know, we have a million teachers on Edmodo this fall, and uh, a lot of them using it to connect with other teachers. Yeah, and I love. Uh, I actually like to think that that Jeff O'Hare. Uh, who was an early on user of Classroom 2.0, um, at least was yeah. inspired to some degree by Classroom 2.0. Probably was, right? Yeah, but it, so it's a uh, it is a fun environment, and then, you know there's there are interesting levels, of course, like all things where where um, where they exist at, uh, where people get a chance to to pick and choose what they want to do. Um, okay, so I want all that time for a final question. If anybody has one, or well, you can raise your hand into the third icon over in the participant window, or you can uh, put a note in the chat. Lawrence is back, but Lawrence, you don't have a mic, so I'm assuming you're typing. <laughs> we can't. We may not be able to wait forever, so you may want to keep it a quick question. Okay. Blended. Okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Where do you see companies like Udemy and crowdsourcing lessons fitting in? Yeah, great, uh, great question. Um, mostly, um, mostly post-secondary. Um, in the, I need to learn something fast, or I'm interested in learn, learning something fast. Um, and uh, you know, some people are going to pick a MOOC and and uh, and wade through. Kind of solo, and others are going to find a, a thicker. You know, Udemy just launched uh, um, uh, hybrid courses that uh, that do a, a nice job of creating a community around a set of learning objectives. And uh, so, I guess in short, there's a, a lot of great ways to learn things, and uh, it's exciting to watch people um, choosing the right path for them. I think that's a great place to finish. Tom, as a courtesy to our guests, we do end on time, so I'm clapping for you. It's not hard in Labyrinth Collaborate to find the applause button, but it is under the smiley face icon and look for applause. That's me clapping. Thanks so much for coming on and for a really good conversation. It's mostly minutes. And I'm I'm getting kicked out of the library here in Bellingham, so I'm gonna have to go quickly. Thanks, Tom. Thanks everybody for coming. Don't miss uh, I get to the right slide here. Don't miss the library 2.0 conference, 2.012 conference next week. And then after that, Blake Bowles and Denise Pope and Kirsten Olson. Okay, take care, everybody. Have a good night or day, depending on where you are. Bye now. Bye, Tom. <laughs>